Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. When Hank Aaron made history, scoring his 715th home run and breaking the record held by Babe Ruth, a photo went out worldwide of two teenagers on the field who joined Hank Aaron rounding second base. You may have seen images of that photo. In fact, a large version hangs in the National Baseball Hall of Fame Museum. Later this hour, we'll hear from Ron Sherman, the Atlanta-based UPI photographer who captured that iconic moment and why it took 45 years for him to get credit for the photo. First, we pay tribute to another legendary figure who recently passed away. The world lost a great actress when Cicely Tyson died in late January, and beyond her talent on stage and on screen, Ms. Tyson advanced the opportunities for younger black actors. Dr. Nsinga Burton is a professor of film and media studies at Emory University. She joins us now to talk about the legacy of Cicely Tyson. Dr. Burton, welcome back to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. Nice talking to you again, especially about a woman as phenomenal as Cicely Tyson. Oh, my goodness. The tributes that have poured out from all over are such a testament to what a magnificent legacy she gave us. Cicely Tyson's debut film role was in the movie Sounder in 1972. The story's based on a children's book about a black family during the Depression era. What was the impact of the film and Cicely Tyson's portrayal of her character? So... Cicely Tyson, as you know, Lois, started out as a model. And she, you know, what's interesting about her is that she started out what we would call in quotes later. 
as an actress. So she started out as a model and then she became an actress after she was 30, age 30. So when she started acting and doing movies, that's when she kind of discovered this other talent that she had. She kind of knew she had it, but she was discouraged from really um, exploring it because, you know, she was raised in East Harlem. Um, She's the child of immigrants from the West Indies, and they had a very specific idea of what she should be doing. She was a young mother, and so the idea was that she should not um, really act. So this leads me all the way to her playing the character of Rebecca in Sounder. You know, she had a lot from which to pull in this particular portrayal. And I think this is the movie that really, you know, established her as a leading actress because she had done bits and pieces, you know, in, in TV movies, on TV shows like Gunsmoke and Mission Impossible, you know, the Bill Cosby show. So she'd been kind of dabbling, but this is definitely the role that established her as a powerhouse. Well, he wants you to pay him a visit. Two of you could sit under a shaded tree, drink ice cold whiskey, and shoot the breeze. Well, I hope you told him I was too busy for that kind of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the reasons that was just because she played opposite of her phenomenal co-star, Paul Winfield, the late Paul Winfield, who's an amazing actor. But the fact that she could hold her own against and really just... Uh, be so amazing in her portrayal and so empathetic and so beautiful and and really offer this haunting and emotional performance, uh, I think really just set the stage um, for her really 60 plus year career in entertainment. Yeah, that, I mean, for a debut role as a lead actress, it's astonishing that she made such a huge impact with that nominated for an Academy Award. Yes, and you know, what was also interesting about Cicely Tyson is that she had had lots of other opportunities. So Sounder is actually taking place during what we call the black exploitation era of film. And, and that's an era um, where lots of films with black cast were made and being pumped out, uh, mostly by United Artists, but uh, were being pumped out. They were cheaply made, mass produced, and they were to service a black audience. And I'm not talking about initial, you know, early black exploitation films or some all of the films that were in the black exploitation era didn't satisfy this trope. But they a lot of the representations were stereotypical, they were very negative, they were very demeaning, and they focused on the underworld. So for Cicely Tyson to make this film sounder, she was very specific because she said she would not do those types of films. She wasn't going to play a prostitute. She wasn't going to play a, a drug addict. She wasn't going to play, uh, you know, some part of, or member of the underworld. She's very particular about her roles and about the representation of Black people in general and Black women specifically. So the role of Rebecca um, was one with integrity, was, you know, reflective of the struggle uh, that women, uh, Black women uh, went through and were going through at that time. And, you know, the story of Sounder, you know, is really uh, a beautiful story about what can happen when you're trying to just survive in a world that is set up for your failure. And so I think her performance in it was haunting, but it also speaks to this film being made in 1972 during this particular era of film. So she could have done a lots of different roles, I'm sure, you know, she's Cicely Tyson, um, but she chose to do Sounder, was selected to do Sounder and, and did a phenomenal job and, and held true to her values as well. 
Yeah, so uh, the concern with dignity and, dare I say, being a role model was very important to her in her work. She was communicating a role beyond the film world. Do you think that's fair to say? I think it is fair to say. I think that at that time, you know, there were liberty opportunities for African-Americans. African-American actors, for sure. And, and, you know, African-Americans in front of and behind the camera. So you really had to make a decision if you were going to really pursue acting as a career. So it had to be something you really loved. Even people who were in those black exploitation films, they wanted to work. You know, they wanted to act. So you can't really condemn them. But I do think that Cicely Tyson, she really created, she really proved, you know, with that performance that there was and is an audience for those kinds of dynamic roles, for those roles that have integrity. And as you say, that bring dignity to the experience, the broad experiences of African-Americans. Um, and also showed the different ways in which we live. You know, during the black exploitation era, there's a lot of focus on the urban locations, but this is a very rural, you know, this is a, a movie set in a rural setting. And so really kind of, uh, you know, showing that that part of life that was still very much happening and, and is to this day happening. Um, you know, I think that it was just groundbreaking in a lot of ways. Two years after The Sounder, in 1974, Cicely Tyson appeared in the title role of the autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman, a woman over 100 years old, who was born into slavery. Telling her life story, we get a history lesson of what black people endured in Southern rural life during the entire course of the century between the Civil War and the Civil Rights Movement. And Senga, what was unique about Miss Jane Pittman's narrative? What was unique about her narrative was that she showed the resiliency of being a Black woman who was born a slave and made it to civil rights. You know, if you look at the film, you know, one of the things that's just really wonderful about her character is how respected she is in the community. And you have, you know, a reporter who visits who wants to know her story, but you also have, you know, these young African-Americans who are really fighting for their rights. So it shows the generational struggle of being Black. I, I came down here to talk to you, Miss Jane. Are you 110 years old? <laughs> so to tell me. How far back can you remember? How far back you want to go? Well, uh, the war. Can you remember? World War. Second world, first world, or that that Cuban world? You, you remember the Spanish-American War? Spanish-American War. <laughs> I can do a whole lot better than that. Do you remember getting your freedom? I hope I never forget it. How far back you want to go? You want to go back that far? I'll go back as far as you want to go. Now, you don't have to tell him nothing, Miss Jane. I know that, Lena. But if I don't, he's just going to sit here and worry me half to death. You mean it's all right? How far? You want me to go back as far as I can go? That's even further than when the freedom comes. 
the changes that happen and what has to happen and what she experienced um, over the course of her life. So she, you go from being property to being free, to being free and then not having resources and trying to figure that out to, you know, to allegedly being free, but then being, you know, locked into the system of Jim Crow, where your rights are just repeatedly stripped from you. And then getting out of that and then being part of the civil rights movement or, you know, the movements leading up to civil rights, the civil rights movement, the codified civil rights movement in the 1950s and 60s and being around to see that where you have to go from being property to actually having the ability to fight for your rights, even though you're still facing the same level of danger and terror throughout, you know, that lifetime. And I think Ernest Gaines, rest in peace, who's an amazing uh, writer, really, that's one of the hallmarks of his work. And that is one of his books. The movie is based on on his novel about uh, Miss Jane Pittman. But I think it does a great job of showing the generational struggle that Black people faced. Generational as well as from a woman's point of view. I mean, we, we weren't accustomed to that. Right. She she is. It is definitely from her perspective. It is her story. Her uh, point of view, as you say, is elevated. And you're correct. You know, during this time period, that was very rare. You know, even in terms of narration at that time, you know, most narrators were men. Heck, most narrators are men now. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. But Especially at that time period. But yeah, you're right. It was it was groundbreaking in so many ways. I mean, at the time, if you look at it now, you're like, oh, that makeup is is not very good. But if you were looking at it at that time in 1974, the makeup was outstanding. The costume and wardrobe was outstanding. You know, uh, the way that it was shot was outstanding. The direction was outstanding. Um, so it was groundbreaking in just so many ways. And indeed, the makeup is different from the mind-blowing techniques that can be achieved today, although I think some of that is done in post-production as well. But even though she was this gorgeous young woman herself, Cicely Tyson seemed to inhabit the role of an elderly woman so naturally. I mean, her walk, the way she stooped, I watched it again in amazement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, in the, in the Black community, uh, we have a saying that says, you know, she's been here before, or he's been here before. And what that means is that you have someone who is, you know, maybe young, they could be a child, but they say things and they're uh, comportment, their affect is something is, is of someone who is significantly older <laughs> and has seen much more of the world than their age, you know, their their real world age. And I think Cicely Tyson is one of those people. I mean, she absolutely understands the craft of acting, right? She's a, she studies, you know, she's a student um, her entire life. You know, when you read her book, she's been she studies her entire life acting. So, it, you know, there is the skill set, but there's also something about her when you watch her interviews, when you read things that she's written that su- suggests that she has been here before. You know, she has such great perspective and insight and, you know, self-reflection, you know, self-awareness 
And I think all of that came out, you know, in this, you know, 110 year old ex-slave who was from Louisiana. You know, that is one of the ways in which she was able to really carry herself from that time period all the way through. And that also would have to say her Caribbean roots. You know, there's a lot of misinformation about um, the relationship between uh, Caribbean Blacks and African-Americans here in the country. But a lot of the slave trade entailed, you know, constant movement back and forth. So you may have been sent to, uh, you know, Navy, where she's from now. Um, and then you would come to Barbados and then you would come into Virginia, North Carolina, whatever. Then they might send you back to those places and so forth and so on. So the connection uh, between people of West Indian descent and African-Americans um, in this country is, is significant from the beginning of that, you know, from that, that point where, she, where her story begins. And I think she was able to bring all of that experiential knowledge, all of that book knowledge and all of that performance as well as, you know, that inherent dignity and an inherent knowledge of having seen this world before. I think she just really brought that into her really poetic performance. You know, it's kind of heartbreaking in certain parts. You know, she gets motivated based on a conversation with a white Union soldier, which, of course, from a critic's perspective is kind of problematic but because we knew that Black people were fighting back um, against slavery amongst themselves, too. But having said that, you know, you do see her growth and development as a person. And then in the end, she makes, she still, you know, um, understands that she has to choose. She gets to choose whether she helps out the brothers who are trying to engage in the Civil Rights um, Resistance Act or help out or talk to this reporter, this white male reporter who wants to tell her story. Um, she understands what it means to have power over your body and the ability to say yes and no, even at 110 years old. Mm -hmm. I wish there were a way to reveal this on radio, but it is an extended visual moment that is so compelling in Ms. Tyson's portrayal in the autobiography of Ms. Jane Pittman, where she walks to the drinking fountain for whites only. And I don't know how many seconds that takes. There, there is no sound. There is no narrative that we hear. And yet it's transformative to witness her walk to that drinking fountain for whites only. Can you talk a little bit about that moment, that scene? Well, I will say that um, the use of silence in a movie can often be the most effective tool for creating emotion. Um, and without giving the movie away for those who may not have seen it, if you haven't, you should. <laughs> um, yes. You know, that that kind of performance, used, I mean, Cicely Tyson, you know, one of the wonderful things about her ability was her ability to say so much without saying anything, right? It's her eyes, it's her, her posture, it's her expression, you know? And I think that that scene you're talking about really shows or demonstrates, I mean, really the level of terror under which uh, Black folks were living at that time and the courage it took for someone to do something that, you know, now we just take for granted at that time. And I think the, the director's choice of the use of silence, right, 
was a way to just make it plain, like how, how insane that was, that that's what we were doing to people, but how you literally had to choose between life and death in those instances in many ways. And I think that's what Miss Jane Pittman was com communicating without having said anything. You know, it was her face, it was her expression, it was her, her posture. I mean, it's a brilliant scene and it's a brilliant use of silence and actually is sometimes used as an example in films um, on sound and the, and the use of sound in films as an example of how to convey emotion, how to get your audience to focus really on the bigger issue. And I think that this, this works in that way, but it, it really only works because of Cicely Tyson's performance. Film scholar Nsinga Burton discussing the legacy of Cicely Tyson. We'll be back with more of that conversation after a short break. You're listening to City Lights on WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's return to more of my conversation with Emory Film Professor and Singer Burton. We've been discussing the life and legacy of the late great actress Cicely Tyson. Cicely Tyson was in Roots. She was Quinta Quinta's mother. Yes, yes. The symbolism yes. alone, the symbolism alone. Oh, my God. I have goosebumps just thinking about it in that baby. And then later she was, I think it was barely two years after Roots, she was in A Woman Called Moses about Harriet Tubman. I would think the weight of responsibility because of the historic importance of that material, the necessity of telling stories that were left out of American history, this weight must have been enormous. Do you think that's what led her to work with Richard Pryor in the comedy Busted Loose. I think, yes, you are correct. So Cicely Tyson played Coretta Scott King before she played A Woman Called Moses, before she played Harry Tubman. <laughs> she played Coretta ah. Scott King in a TV movie. She played Blanche Rudolph, which was Wilma Rudolph's mother, <laughs> in a TV movie. She played Benta, <laughs> uh, which was Kunta Kinte's mother in Ruth. Yes. So in my mind, she is like, the ultimate, you know, prior to that, she had already played Jane Pitt. She had already played Rebecca and Sounder. 
But prior to this, you know, she is the ultimate mother figure, right? She is, and she plays these historic figures. And I think she's chosen to play them because, you know, the, the dignity that she brings to these roles and, you know, in addition to the, the talent, but the dignity that she brings to these roles. So when you have Bust and Loose, where she plays the character of, of Vivian, yeah, she gets, to, she gets to be different, but still bring that piece of, um, of herself into that role as well. Um, and I think that it was also the opportunity to work with Richard Pryor, who was a huge star at that time, you know. Um, and, you know, after she plays that, she, of course, she plays Marva Collins, right? <laughs> in the Marva Collins story, um, right? And so you have her um, in this particular role. Yes, it is a comedy. Um, yes, it is co-starring Richard uh, Richard Pryor, but Richard Pryor was a great dramatic actor. Um, he was. He was a brilliant man. He was a great writer. Yes, absolutely. And so this film, you know, it, it is a space for her to play a contemporary, right? Because, you know, most of these other films, you know, roots in, in the time period. This is, you know, she's Kunta Kinte's mother. She is, you know, this is hundreds of years before, you know, Marvin Collins, Blanche uh, Rudolph. You know, these are historic figures, you know, Marvin Collins was still, I think, alive at this time, but she was still a historic figure. So Bustin' Lou, she gets to play a contemporary version of herself, right? She's a, a director of a foster home, <laughs> and she's trying to get these kids from Philly to Seattle. She is still in charge of, right? She's still the person who was looked to for guidance and nurturing and kindness. But, you know, she, she comes into contact with this parolee, um, who really is just trying to stay out of jail, <laughs> but is made to become a better person because of her. And I think, you know, conversely, you know, Richard Pryor becomes a better actor because of her, right? You can't work against um, Cicely Tyson in the way that she worked against, you know, Paul Winfield and Sounder. Like you can't help but become a better performer when you're working, you know, with that kind of talent. And so I think that um, Cicely Tyson, and in this particular role, they kind of do a dance, you know, she kind of leans back. You don't see that powerful performance that, she, that we're used to getting from her, right? You know, where it's, it's dramatic and it's moving the narrative forward. And, um, you know, she's commanding the screen. You know, she really is sharing that space with, with Pryor. And she's kind of, you know, I, I think that she is kind of leaning back, you know, leaning out of the role and letting him come forward. Right, letting his brilliant show, letting him um, show that he is a complex figure, you know, which we already knew, but he's a complex uh, talent and he can do these things and he can be funny and touching and poignant. And so I think that's what's great about Bust and Loose, you know, it is a comedy, but it's also allows her to, to not be, do the heavy lifting, because that's what you're talking about, Lois, like she's not doing the heavy lifting in the film and she has the opportunity to really nurture and mentor a, a Richard Pryor in that particular role. Yeah. And that's something that's come out in so many of the tributes, her, her generosity. Right after she died, Tyler Perry wrote, she was the grandmother I never had, and the wisdom tree I could always sit under to fill my cup. My heart breaks in one beat, while celebrating her life in the next. What about her work with Tyler Perry? I mean, you're, you're a film scholar. What do you make of her work with him? I think Tyler Perry does not get credit for, I would say, 
resuscitating the careers of some dynamic black women actors. And I'm not saying that we, you know, consistently Tyson is legend, period. <laughs> you could have yes. like stopped making movies in like 81. <laughs> And we still be like, oh my God, Cicely Tyson is a legend. <laughs> so I'm not right. saying that, you know, he 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 made her. I'm saying that he resuscitated a career that should have never gone quiet because of Hollywood's obsession with youth and Hollywood's obsession with telling a very particular type of story, uh, even when they tell Black stories. She was also godmother to his son, uh, which I think people don't know, or not too many people know. And Tyler Perry would also, you know, whatever pay she was going to have, because, you know, she was in the union, of course, he would, you know, what his, his words were pad. When I say that in quotes, you can't see the quotes, but he would enhance her pay because of all of the poor pay that Black actors received um, back in the day, you know, when, when she was making all those wonderful movies, but being underpaid um, and not very well treated necessarily by the industry. So he would do that for her. You know, the fact that they worked together, you know, she worked in his films, Diary of a Mad Black Woman, uh, where again, she played, you know, the woman of wisdom, Medea's Family Reunion in 2006. And she started in that with Maya Angelou, you know, another like, you know, reflection of just great talents and performance performers from a very particular era. Why Did I Get Married Too? She was in that, that was in 2010. And, you know, what's also interesting about him uh, and their relationship, Tyler Perry and her relationship, he made this movie called Alex Cross. And there was a lot of talk about it because people think of, uh, you know, Tyler Perry as a writer, director. They don't really think of him as an actor, even though he plays Medea. He also plays other roles in his films. So for him to be stepping out and playing this kind of action role, it was like a political thriller. Alex Cross is based on a, a book. But he also, I mean, I, I assume that she was in that movie because of him as well. She starred in that movie too. <laughs> so the relationship between them was definitely mentor-mentee, but it was also one of friendship and family. And I think that his association with people like Cicely Tyson and Maya Angelou and Oprah Winfrey and what have you really elevated his status in the industry from a, an artistic perspective. And I think that her association with him really allowed her, you know, resuscitated her career and allowed her to be the performer that she wanted to be, you know, in these particular movies. And then, you know, of course, she went on to star in, in a number of other roles. But I think that, the, you know, they had a synergy, they had a mutual respect, mutual affection. Uh, and sometimes, you know, if you're privileged enough, you can work with someone that becomes your family. You, you, I, I know that that's the case with you, Lois. Um, and so I think that this is what happened with them as well. You know, mm. Cicely Tyson landed in Shondaland, yeah. playing playing no less than Annalise's mother, Ophelia Harkness. We have a clip: Cicely Tyson's murder debut. Yes. There was a time when TV was popular entertainment. Of course, it still is. But we have actors the caliber of Viola Davis and Cicely Tyson playing on weekly network television shows here. No lowbrow versus highbrow distinctions, or, or at least that's been blurred. What does it say about Cicely Tyson that she had the gravitas to conquer roles 
that are touchstones in cinema and also enjoyed working in lighter entertainment? Well, first of all, Cicely Tyson and How to Get Away with Murder is amazing as Ophelia. I think that you are correct. There is more of a blur uh, between television and film, you know, at one at one point you used to have to choose, right? You were either a TV actor or a film actor, like you were not both. But I don't think that's really been the case now for a very long time. But you know, with the um, development of OTT over the top, the streaming technology, it's even less of a case. But you know, this is a woman who was in, you know, Madam Secretary. She was in House of Cards. You know, she cherished the day, a TV series. She was in that as well. You know, and then of course, how to get away with murder, where she plays, I mean, literally, right? Because she is the she is the mother of Viola Davis in the industry. <laughs> yes. You know, like she is the the mentor, right? The the mother of these dynamic black actors who've come behind her and you know, on, on her shoulders they stand and they willingly say that, you know, they they say that. But you know, she's in this particular place because of her talent and her skill. You know, she is someone who has staying power in a way that other actors from her generation did not. And I think just because she's always willing to reinvent herself while still staying true to the core of who she is and looking for those roles that have some type of of integrity, looking for those roles of complicated figures. You know, even though she said she would not play uh, a member of the underworld, you know, back in the seventies, she played, you know, um, an underworld boss in the movie Hoodlum. And so she thought that that character was at least doing something for the good of the community, you know? So I think that's what you see in her performances, particularly in television. They're still dynamic. They're still outstanding. I mean, her the, the clip you're going to play for How to Get Away with Murder, outstanding. You know, it really shows Ophelia conflict with her daughter right so it speaks to the mother-daughter conflict it speaks to a history of abuse in their family and the fact that they have been estranged or you know had this complicated relationship because you know Annalise is under the impression that her mother did not protect her Um, and we learn a lot about that particular scene Um, you also have her mother um, this whole idea of Black women being able to get over stuff and get out of bed. You know, Annalise is literally lying in the bed. This is like when she takes off her wig, which is monumental in TV history. But she's taking off her wig. She's not wearing makeup. She's lying in the bed. She is bereaved because her husband is dead. Her lover is brought up on charges. Like, but she's dealing with a lot. <laughs> and her mom comes in and is like, get up out of that bed. Like, you cannot stay in the bed. And it's this whole idea of the superwoman, right? The Black superwoman. Like, you just cannot be tired. And how that is passed on generationally. Like you're not allowed to grieve. You're not allowed to stay down or to admit that you are hurt or you are bereaved um, or you are sad or that you are depressed. So, <laughs> your low cow, sorry husband, who I said don't marry, couldn't keep his Peter in his pants and went slept with a white woman. Then the fool goes and kills the white woman when he finds out she has his bun in her nasty oven. And after that, your ex-police boyfriend kills the no-good husband and gets himself arrested. And you now ain't got no husband, ain't got no boyfriend, and you hold up in this bed like the Queen of Sheba. Does that about cover it? 
Well, I'm all into this one. I have to get Lottie's grandson to pull up the stories on Google. I know what you've been up to. Calling me up, talking about, I need you. Hell yes. Running around here like you somebody. Get up. Smell like somebody's dying in here. Come on. Get your butt up out this bed and get in the shower. Get up. I wrote about this scene in this book I co-edited on, on mental health, uh, Black women's mental health. And the scene is wonderful because it really speaks to all of those challenges that we have in our lives. Cicely Tyson had a very complicated relationship with her daughter. Um, she actually dedicated her book, Just As I Am, to her daughter. But she had a very complicated relationship with her daughter. And so you kind of see that part of her in this particular character. Uh, and you see those generational issues that affect Black women, women in general, I would say, Black women specifically in this particular episode. And then even, you know, we, we don't know that Annalise had a different name, you know, um, <laughs> Annie Mae, you know, was her name. And her mother's like, I'll call you whatever I want to call you. Because <laughs> uh, I brought you into the world. I'll take you out of it. So it's that homespun, old school, culturally rich type of performance that speaks to generations of women, not just Black women, but especially to Black women who know these women, who are our grandmothers, our great-grandmothers, our mothers, and the complicated relationships that we have. And in spite of all of that, the fierce love and loyalty that we have to one another. Emory University Professor of Film and Media Studies and Singer Burton discussing the legacy of Cicely Tyson. You can find more information about her film recommendations on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Thanks to the brilliance of Hank Aaron, the date, April 8th, 1974, marks a historic achievement. It was on that date... Hank Aaron hit his 715th home run to break Babe Ruth's record. Ron Sherman was among the 100-plus assignment photographers at Atlanta's Fulton County Stadium that night. The photo he took for UPI was sent around the world and has its own story. Ron Sherman is with us now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. I'm glad to be here. Ron, how did you first get involved in photography, and in particular newspaper photography? Well, my first published photo was in junior high school. It was a Polaroid picture I had shot of, uh, of a meeting. Uh, but uh, I got involved in newspaper photography because... I used to uh, freelance uh, in high school for the uh, Cleveland Plain Dealer, Cleveland Press, and Cleveland and News covering football. And then the editors started saying, well, can you cover a second game? We like you know more pictures. And my best 
day was uh, where I had two pictures published in each of the three newspapers. And I think I made a total of $60 that day. And that, that was good money back in 1958. And it, that started my career in newspaper photography. And uh, eventually the army decided they wanted me. So I spent a year in Vietnam and coming back. My mom said, well, you know, I don't know if this uh, photography gig will be good for you. Why don't you go to graduate school? So uh, I got an assistantship at uh, Syracuse and went to graduate school. And in intermediate time between uh, Vietnam and graduate school, I got married. And uh, we decided we needed to move someplace warmer than Syracuse, New York, which was cold up there. And we came down to Atlanta in uh, 71. It was 70 degrees. Dogwoods were out, the azaleas were out, and it was an easy sell to move down here. Would you talk about the day Hank Aaron broke Babe Ruth's record? That was an interesting in, interesting day. I uh, didn't realize what was going to happen, but um, I, I was uh, on assignment for UPI, and I decided um, basically they let me go where I wanted to go <clears throat> as a freelance photographer. I, I call that self-unemployed because you were employed by various clients and, and publishers. And then when the assignment was over, you were unemployed. So uh, a standing joke, but it, in truth, that's what it really was about. And I picked the third base side, which uh, there was a uh, photo box between home plate and third. And it was a good view of when Hank would hit his, uh, uh, he was right-handed, so he would end up looking towards towards our side of the of the dugout. We were there early on. We were there about two hours before the game to start. And there was a lot of people there, celebrities. Uh, the governor was there and uh, Jimmy Carter and uh, Sammy Davis Jr. was there and uh, a number of other celebrities uh, talking and, and chatting and stuff like that. Then the game started and um, his first time at bat, uh, he hit a couple of foul balls, and I don't remember. I don't think he got on base, but uh, every time he swung the bat, somebody took a picture. There were probably 100 credential photographers there. And then the second at-bat is when he hit the home run, and uh, I had my color camera up to, to shoot color of him hitting the ball. Everybody in the, in the universe uh, got that picture. And then I picked up my other camera, which had black and white film in it, and I just followed him around the bases. And through my lens, I saw something. Uh, the, the two boys came out there, and I, uh, I kept taking pictures, taking pictures until uh, he came down to home plate. And then all the, every, all the teammates greeted him uh, uh, so that he could hit the, the, the home plate and uh, celebration. And uh, then they brought the ball in from the outfield, and so we got pictures of, uh, of him holding the ball up, and uh, then the game continued. Uh, I didn't think much about the picture until uh, UPI had a darkroom there, and they were processing the film. They came up with a photo, looked at it, they said, this is a keeper. Would you describe that photo? The picture turned out, and I, I looked at my negatives again recently, and I only had this one shot, one image of the two boys tapping him on the shoulder. As he came around second base to third base, there was an opening there where I followed him around, and they touched him on the shoulders, and then they, they moved on. So these teenagers rushed onto the field to yes. congratulate him. 
Yes, they did. And that's all, you know, that's all it was about. They did hold these guys. They did. They didn't arrest them. They kept them uh, isolated till the end of the game and then uh, let them go because they realized it was just a prank and, and there was no harm, no foul kind of thing. So the picture editor at UPI transmitted the photo and um, the quick end of the rest of the story is no one knew for 40 some years who made the photo because UPI used initials RS for the guy who sent transmitted the photo slash RS for me as the photographer. What amazed me was I checked a few years later about the photo because I was surprised not to see it in Life Magazine or in Sports Illustrated. And I checked the archives, the AP archives, um, Life Magazine archives, all the agencies that, that I knew about, and no one had the photo. And that to me was astonishing. So it took 45 years for you to be credited with taking that photograph. Yes, and the only reason that it, it happened was um, at, right after the event, I was so uh, friends with the executive picture editor at UPI. He called me up and said, Ron, we want to borrow the negative, make some large prints. So I cut the frame before and the frame after, uh, 36 exposure roll, and sent it up to them. Totally forgot about it. I mean, when you're out working as, as a photographer, a freelance photographer especially, you're not sure what, what's happening next. And so the next job comes up, and that's what you're, you're zeroing in on. You don't worry about what you've already done. Ten years later, I'm looking at a TV guide magazine that had uh, Oprah Winfrey on the cover where they had supposedly put her head on somebody else's body for the cover shot, which made a lot of controversy back then. And I opened it up and there was a top 100 news events for the whatever it was the last decade or, or however long it was. And uh, Hank Aaron was number 10 with my photo that said Bettman Archives Corbus. I says, hey, uh, I ought to find out what, uh, what's going on with, with that photo. Why do they have it? Well, as it turned out, UPI sold their archives to Bettman Archives, and Bettman Archives, which is a photo agency, Corbis then bought the, that. And what happened was my negative ended up with these agencies. So once I realized that, I was able to um, impress upon them that that was my negative, because as working for UPI back then, I kept the copyright on all my photos. The UPI didn't own it. I was a freelancer being paid as a freelance basis. If UPI didn't own the photo, why were you not credited? Well, because the picture that went out just had my initial on there. And and was that common? Oh, yes. Oh. Yeah. AP, and uh, when they sent out their captions, they did put their photographer's name, you know, photo, AP photo, photo by so-and-so. But UPI, back as far as long as I remember, were only initials used. So the idea of intellectual property eh, didn't exist then? Not so much? Oh, yeah, it did very much. In fact, uh, I was um, unrepentant in my uh, exercise of my uh, pictures even back then about somebody using my photo uh, without payment. So, but it, it was um, in a way a lot easier because there, there weren't pictures on the internet that people could just borrow or steal or whatever, however you want to call it. So, and it really wasn't 
it wasn't on the front of my mind about what was going on until I realized that, hey, I never got that negative back and um, I, I sure would like to get it back. So I got it back and fast forward, uh, a friend of mine, uh, Jay Kaufman was um, also at that event. He was also shooting for UPI. And he calls me up and says, hey, Ron, your photo is hanging in the Baseball Hall of Fame. I said, say what? And so um, he put me in touch with the archivist there that he was talking with because he was he was trying to get some of his photos at the, in the Hall of Fame. And we had a discussion and, and I said, well, how, how did Baseball Hall of Fame get the photo? And the archivist went down and pulled the picture out and there was Corbis stamp on the back. So they bought a eight by 10 print from uh, Corbis to, for their archives. And at one time they blew it up to a five foot by eight foot. And Jay says, you know, the picture doesn't, it, it's, it's blown up from a really small file. It really doesn't look that great. So I made a deal with um, the Baseball Hall of Fame and if they would publicize that Ron Sherman took that photo, uh, I would get a high-res photo uh, image to them that they could then redo the uh, the picture that was hanging there. And they did that and they sent me a copy of the picture hanging with a little plaque that said photo by Ron Sherman. And uh, so the rest was history, but it took till uh, October of 2019 to um, get that, that credit for it. Really nothing's happened until I was written up in a couple of magazines, but nothing really until now that Hank has passed. And um, there's been a couple of stories written about that picture and and my photo. Ron, when you were developing that photo in the dark room, did you realize you'd captured something extraordinary? Not at the time. It was just another good photo that I was pleased with. The editor, you know, deciding what got sent out and what didn't get sent out, uh, realized right away that it was, you know, it was a good photo. And uh, it really didn't dawn on me until the realization was no one else got that photo. I mean, I recently saw a Sports Illustrated photo, but it only had one, of, it was in color. It only had one of the boys near him. The other boy was few feet behind him, and that was as close as anybody got. Sure. But, you know, with these horrific things we've learned about death threats and, and uh, threats of harm to his family, um, first, it's amazing that two random teenagers made it onto the field. Hank Aaron doesn't look upset. I guess I guess they were <laughs> conveying that they were thrilled and not threatening. Exactly. I we found out later that there were I don't know how many uh, dozens of um, plainclothes police, um, Georgia State Police, uh, of City of Atlanta. Um, I think even the FBI had uh, agents throughout the stadium. But yeah, that was um, that was pretty amazing. Yeah, and then they just went on their merit on their merry way and the game went on and um as a as the official said later on after they let him go it was no harm no foul and uh and something those boys will remember uh for, for the rest of their lives and for the rest of your life will you feel excited that your photo 
of this historic accomplishment hangs in the Baseball Hall of Fame Museum. Yes, that's... <laughs> um, I, I have uh, another photo from Atlanta that's in the African American uh, Museum in, in DC. Uh, but, uh, but this one outranks anything because, you know, the, the thing is, photos printed in publications are fleeting. I mean, I have hundreds and hundreds of photos published in magazines, annual reports and stuff mm. like that. And especially in a newspaper, you know, we read it one day and it's in the birdcage the next. And this one will be there, I guess, as long as the Baseball Hall of Fame is, uh, is open because uh, his accomplishment will not fade from history. And uh, I'm a small part of it, but uh, I'm glad I got it. And uh, it, it was sort of crept up on me in terms of um, the importance that photo became over the years. Yeah. What photo of yours hangs in the National Museum of African American History? It's actually a very simple photo. I, I did a lot of, um, of coverage of Atlanta for various magazines. And uh, one of the magazines was doing a story on middle-class blacks in Atlanta who lived in Atlanta and what they did, their daily lives. So I went out and uh, photographed uh, the people out uh, shopping and uh, the picture that's hanging in there in their permanent exhibit is a photo of a, of a middle-aged, uh, I'd say a 30, 35 year old man washing his car in front of his home. Just a very, very simple photo. Ron Sherman, this has been so interesting. Thank you very much for talking with us. Thank you, Lois. Atlanta-based photojournalist Ron Sherman his iconic photo of Hank Aaron is on display at the National Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum. You can see the photo and find more information about Ron Sherman on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. Tomorrow morning at 11, Love Notes, special love-themed music ahead of Valentine's Day. City Lights producer is Summer Evans. Shelley Canavy is our engineer. And I'm Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Thank you for listening to member-supported W-A-B-E Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. 
But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.